Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut. I'm an ASC cinematographer, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about something. Getting started in this industry is almost impossible. And my wife, Lydia, and I, 14 years ago, created a resource called Filmmakers Academy to make it possible. We saw a lot of gatekeeping in this industry and not a lot of sharing knowledge. So we wanted to pull back the curtain, give you confidence, teach you all the necessary skills to be an amazing, successful filmmaker, and package it all on this online resource that you have at your fingertips, on set, on your phone, on your laptop, whatever it is. So we're going to give you $50. So if you go into the show notes, click the link, and hit the promo code FAPOD50, you're going to get $50 on your first year of an all-access membership. And I cannot wait for you to join our immense and immersive community at Filmmakers Academy, where we network, we share knowledge, we just bond as this huge filmmaking uh, resource to ignite your creativity and push you beyond your boundaries. I cannot wait to see you in the Academy, and let's get to the podcast. Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. Hello, Inner Circle members, and welcome to the December 2015 podcast. I want to wish all of you an incredible holiday season and a wonderful happy new year. We are taking some much needed R&R with the family. And after I go on this nine day scout on my next feature film to Prague, Nice, Cannes, and Macau, I'm going to be heading and, and greeting the family in Thailand and sharing some much rest and relaxation with them. I wanted to thank you all for your support, your amazing ideas, your gracious comments, and all of your input on the Facebook page and just helping everyone out. I think we've created a, an incredible community. And in this holiday season of giving, I just want to thank all of you for sharing of your knowledge and sharing of your time and your expertise to continue to educate filmmakers all over the world. And I'm so proud of this incredible community that we have created. Here's our first question. Shane, hello. Well, hello to you, Drazen. Excellent inner circle. Congrats to you and your crew. I will pass that on to them. Thank you. Would there be any chance that you could do a article with video material to support it on the subject of exposure, creating mood, and using the most out of the Flanders monitors? In your recent July podcast, you talked about setting your skin tones at different IRE values depending on the mood of the scene. How do you exactly dial in that correct IRE skin tone value? That would be great to see the whole process and workflow revealed. It would be nice to see different lighting situations such as high key, low key, average, mid contrast, gray, how they affect your approach at setting the Flanders monitors for success. It would be great to see and hear how you set your skin tones depending on the atmosphere of the scene. I am sure that the subject would be great interest to many of us Inner Circle members. What do you think? Best regards, Drazen. Well, what do I think, Drazen? Well, I'll tell you. In 2016, there is a whole article and video series of exactly what you just described in all different lighting scenarios and me dialing in all the IRE values and all splayed in front of you. And I think it's a 25 to 35 minute video that really digs deep into night exteriors and to low light, high key, all the different situations that you're talking about. So this is all coming in 2016. You all have been uh, so amazing with your questions and your comments. And our team has been putting all these into a massive spreadsheet. And that is what generated the 2016 content creation for the inner circle. So Flanders monitors and IRE values and dialing everything 
everything was at the top of our list. We shot that over a four-day period of showing you as I lit a specific situation and the specific mood, we would then tag on a whole Flanders section of how I dialed it in, how I exposed it, how I moved the gray bar up and down to the correct IRE value and all that stuff so you can completely get up to speed on how I dial in these monitors and how I use it for exposure. This is all coming to you as quickly as we can put it into our schedule. And we have a very impressive schedule coming out for 2016. And we're going to be starting to share some of the coming soon kind of things with all of you to get you all pumped up and excited. Instead of me trying to talk you through the whole process, I think you'll have to wait for this series because it's going to be the most informative and uh, the most in-depth of what is coming in 2016. Next question. What is your opinion on the color meter use versus fixing it in post? Color meters alone cost a pretty penny and matching the lighting temperature is an added cost on top as well. Since Resolve can correct color temp issues in post, and color grading is usually done anyways, is it worth the time and money to use a color meter with corresponding lighting to get the color temperatures right in the first place during the shoot, or concentrate more on post? Is the quality difference worth it? Thanks in advance, Mark. Okay, this is a great question, as well as Drazen's was, and that's why we did a whole video article about it. The color meter is probably more important than the light meter now with digital technology. And the way I use false colors and expose, I can immediately find that kind of light meter on the monitor now. I'm using the light meters more to match values when we go back and shoot inserts, pickups of stuff that we missed, or just for reference in regards to, okay, yeah, we've always had our moonlight at a half stop under or one stop over. And this is to be able to get into the ballpark. We can immediately pop out the light meter and know, oh, we're shooting at a two eight and I'm at a two and a half. The moonlight's perfect. Those are the places that I'm using a light meter. But on a color meter, I'm using that all the time. Because using the color temperature within the camera is probably one of the most powerful tools of the camera. Just like we would shoot on daylight balance film stock or tungsten balance film stock, you need to keep that same etiquette. If I'm going outside and it's under 5600 Kelvin, then I am setting my camera. If I want it to look neutral, white, then I'm setting my camera. If I want it slightly cooler, then I'm setting it at 52 Kelvin. 5200 Kelvin. If I want it a little warmer, I'm setting it maybe at 6000 Kelvin. Now, can you do this in the post process? Absolutely. But what you cannot do in the post process is varying color temps. What I mean varying color temps is say you're shooting under sodium vapor lights and you want them to have this really kind of golden quality. Well, if you go to 3,800 Kelvin or 4,000 Kelvin, you're going to get that beautiful color tone. The uh, signal lights, the red lights are going to look richer. The green lights are going to look richer. The yellow lights are going to look richer. The sodium vapors are going to be richer. Anything that is like a colder light, like a metal halide that's around 56 or 6,000 Kelvin is going to be blue green. I just find that sliding that color temperature wheel up and down, it dictates everything that I do. Let's take the babysitter, which is my last project I literally wrapped yesterday, last night at like 1 a.m. Color temperature was huge. And I'll share a little bit of pearls of, of wisdom here uh, in regards to using Canon glass as well, because we did a mix of Canon zooms and Cook S4 primes on this project. Cook S4 primes are very white. Canon zooms are very red-yellow. Most of the movie takes place at night. It's kind of this Tarantino slasher horror film. And I'd never done one of those before, so I thought it would be 
awesome to do. Only back in my days when I was coming up the ladder as a grip truck driver did I do the slashers. I started out with Phantasm 2. This summer, the ball is back. And then I slid to Space Sluts and the Slammer. Oh, Space Sluts and the Slammer, their line was, they're bound and determined. There was Memorial Day Massacre. They're not axing for trouble. They're just axing. Death Row Diner. I did all these B-horror films when I was starting out as a grip truck driver, as a key grip, as a dolly grip. All these kind of slasher films were in my pedigree. I had never done one as a director of photography, so I thought, what the hell? It was so much fun and just an incredible experience. Okay, off subject, getting back to where I was. We had a lot of night on this picture. We had a very low budget, so I had to come up with lighting massive spaces for not a lot of money. And HMIs are very expensive, and they're problematic. They have micro switches, so you can't just open up the door and all that UV light escapes and blinds everyone. It's electronic ballast because they want to be flicker-free. There's just, they're quirky. A tungsten light, you plug it into something, it's 99% of the time the thing is going to turn on. And I knew we had a very tight schedule and I had to light big swaths of area in this neighborhood on the Warner Ranch. So we turned to Maxi Brutes which is a Mole Richardson light that has 12 1K par lights in rows of three rows of four. And I take two of those and I mount them directly to the face of the condor basket. And that way you don't need a person in the basket. You can pan and tilt the basket, pan left, pan right, tilt up, tilt down. It becomes a beautiful operated light for minimal expense other than the condor and those two lights that rent for under, I think it's $95 a piece a day each light. So for under $200, you have a huge moon source. And I put narrow beams in there. Now you would think, wow, narrow beams, 24K of light, night exterior, 800 ISO on a red dragon. You never use the beam. You always aim the beam above your action. If you're lighting a street and it's at the end of it, you take it. And this is something that I learned from Conrad Hall. He's like one of the greatest cinematographers of all time. 90% of the time, every light that he ever used was full spot. And he used it full spot and then he just tilted it up off of the set till it got this perfect gradation and then he rolled. So this is what I do with my maxi brutes. They're spots, right? And you take the beam and you aim it right at the road where you want to shoot. And then you start to tilt the basket up. So the beam goes over the camera. And I'm talking not over the camera in regards to five feet. I'm talking 80 feet over the camera. And that beam shoots through the night like a tractor beam. And then the residual light that spills out of the bottom of these narrow beams is what is my moonlight. It's beautiful. It's absolutely stunning on how this looks. The cool thing about this is imagine if all of a sudden you shoot the whole sequence at 24 frames and then you have a sequence where you want to go to 120 frames per second. Well, all you do is just tilt the whole light down and now your beam starts to intensify and now you have the backlight that's perfect for 120 frames and you have done hardly anything other than just tilting down a light. It works like a million bucks. I've used it on Terminator Salvation, We Are Marshall, Drum line, every movie that I've done other than Into the Badlands. Into the Badlands, I used HMIs. And the reason I did that is because I wanted this futuristic world to say that after the bombs went off, there was this weird atmospheric change and the moon became cyan blue-green. It's just my imagination, and I just went with it. And the producers and the director loved the idea, and it makes the look 
of Into the Badlands unique. I feel that Moonlight is kind of a slightly coolish gray tone. So that's what Babysitter and Terminator Salvation and We Are Marshall, all that has a gray moon. So on this, to be able to pull off that gray moon when we're lighting with tungsten is you have to have a little coolness in it. So I took the tungsten light, which the Maxi Brutes were at 3200 Kelvin, and I set my camera to 2900 Kelvin. And it grays and slightly puts a cool tone, that 300 Kelvin, into your backlight or your moon bounce ambience, whatever it is that you're using that's tungsten based, it warms it up. Once you do that, all your other tungsten lights, like if you're using lights inside of a house that are supposed to play as incandescent practicals, then everything has to warm up. If you were playing as practicals inside a window, then I would probably go to a tungsten light with half CTS or three quarter CTS, Roscoe CTS on there. This is playing in the 22, 21 hundred Calvin range. That way you have a beautiful mix. The moonlight has a slightly coolish gray tone to it. And then the incandescent lights, because you've lowered down to 2900, you've had to warm those up in relation to it. So you see how by doing this color temperature, it's so important in camera. It's not something that you should be doing in the post process. And you can play with color contrast. And color contrast with the digital cameras is even more important than it was on film because film saw a much bigger array of bit depth than digital does. Even though they say it has all this bit depth and all this stuff, our machines can only capture so much bit depth. I mean, that technology is going to be better, but film had such a wide range of bit depth. And I just feel that with digital cameras, I'm using more color contrast. And when I say color contrast, I'm saying, okay, if I'm backlighting and the moon is 3200 Kelvin, and then my bounce, my moon bounce, I'm going to be at 3600 Kelvin. So it has even a cooler tone to the shadows. And then if my practicals inside a house in the background are going to be at 2100 Kelvin, you see how I'm moving all these color temperatures temperatures all around, we can really get this color contrast that I think is even more important with the digital sensor. And then I'll mix a cyan blue-green, like a metal halide. I just love mixing colors. And the only way that you can effectively really do this is by choosing that color temperature on your camera and really lighting around that color temperature with all these varying color temps that I talked about. Doing it in post you're going to get much more of a one tonality where with what I'm describing, you're getting multiple tones. If you watch Into the Badlands, that is a, another perfect example where you see like this rich warm light coming in the windows. And then there's like slightly cool tone that's this ambience that comes through the windows mixed with the warm hard light. And then all of a sudden there's this blue green in the shadows. I'm doing that with celeb Kino flows that I'm bouncing and then I'm making them putting like half plus green on them to dirty up the world. When you start to put blue-green into the shadows and then you go in color correction and you crank down your contrast, you crank your blacks down, the minute it has that green tonality in the blacks, it just looks dirty and it looks so good and so cool. So it's just something that I do on uh, almost everything. And, you know, Stefan Sonnefeld at Company 3, he and I kind of stumbled onto this on Terminator Salvation and we started to use that as as our signature with how I lit. Now with the digital sensor, I've taken it even up the ante a little more and added even more green to then help him in that process of uh, pushing green into the blacks when you crush them down. Okay, well, I hope I have answered that question. Hi, Shane. First of all, many thanks for you sharing all of this knowledge. You are very welcome. Thank you for your comments and, and everything that you, uh, all your support of the Inner Circle which is helping me a lot now. It could have saved me a lot of mistakes over the past few years. Sorry, we've been trying to get this thing out as soon as possible. <laughs> My question comes to this. I've been filming some product videos for a tile company for a few years now. The first came out badly. 
this year are much better, but I still haven't got them to the point of making me proud of them. They are high-end tiles and mosaics of different shapes, size, colors, etc. And we do these shoots on two or three wall sets that the company and the art department builds. I've been using several tungsten lights to bounce off the white ceiling they build on top and several other small tungsten airy bounced or through diffusers from the sides against plants, etc. to create shapes and shadows. Sometimes we have talent on the set. If it was their home, bathroom, kitchen, etc., some other times just the set showing the product. Most cases, we dress the room as it was a person's high-end home, a bit towards the minimalistic to show more the product than props. I'm using slider, tripod, and crane. Now, after watching post of your lighting videos, my question is, how would you approach setups like this, where the protagonist is the floor or the walls, tiles, mosaics, etc., to try and get as much as you can of the product, its texture, its color. Color needs to be on spot, like makeup ads, etc. Would you light the whole set and shoot or light a part of it and shoot that, then another, and so on? Which camera filters would you recommend? Which diffusers and light setups? How would you approach this overall? Many thanks. All the best, Alex. Jesus, Alex, this is a lot of questions. All right, let's start with the first one. How do I try to get the most out of the product? It's texture, color, uh, color needs to be spot on. Would you light the whole set and shoot or light a part of it and shoot that, then another, and so on? Okay, well, I would treat each texture, each tile, each mosaic as a character. That character has whatever that character has. It's smooth, it's bumpy, it's colorful, it's got a different colors throughout it. You know, treat that tile as a character and how the light is going to be able to deliver the best out of the character. Now, I'm very much about natural light, even though you're on a set, having the feel of natural light. If it's a late afternoon coming through, the mood and tone of those type of scenarios. But with your case, it has to be very white because if we start to warm up the light like it's late afternoon and cool in the shadows, then obviously it's going to affect the color of your mosaics and the color of your tile. So we want it to be somewhat hyper white. So you want to stay very neutral with all your tones, crisp, clean, stark, but the lighting quality should be dialed in to what that tile surface and that mosaic surface and that color is to be able to bring out the best personality of it. If it's a glass tile and it has different shades within it, well, you're going to want some kind of a soft source that lights it from the side because bouncing just things into the ceiling is going to be very flat. I would still use the ability of window light to be able to bring light in, just make it neutral. You're lighting with tungsten and you know set your camera to 3200, light the whole scene very neutral and let the color of the tile be your color contrast. And that way, if you want to show the texture of the tile, then you're going to have to go more radical with your light. You don't want it to be top lit or flat lit. You want to bring the light down lower so you can start to see the bumpiness or the, the beautiful idiosyncrasies of the texture of the tile. A lot of times, I'll do this where I'll move a light. If you're shooting the tile, I'll literally take a light like a soft source, and I'll move it with my hand. And all of a sudden, the sheen is like it whites out the tile, but then it, after it comes out of the sheen, it now reveals its rich color and tone of the tile as the light moves around it. You can do these for nice inserts on the tile just to give it some mood and uniqueness. When you're setting up these scenarios where it's a person's high-end home, I think the clean 
kind of pottery barn restoration hardware store is going to be your perfect inspiration because they do the same thing with that. They're not doing all these different mixed color temperatures and moods and everything and, and late afternoon or early morning because people can't see what the true color is of that wall or that furniture or of that couch. So it has to be very clean, very white, very crisp. You can use hard light to create shadows through windows. So there's light and dark. Play with contrast range. I would try to think in a natural sense of how this room would be lit if you walked into a real home, keeping your palette neutral, but there would be maybe sunlight blazing through the window that would scrape across the tile and the window pane shadow would be across the tile. And that way you get, when you're panning across it, there's light and shadow and shape, shaping that light. So you have that depth and dimension is also going to pull the best out of the tile in regards to its texture and its color and its tone. I'm just going into it in regards to the thought process of how I would treat the tile as a character and I would then, whatever that character is and its texture, I would try to use a specific light to be able to accent, to take that emotion of the tile. If we're talking about camera emotion and lighting emotion, I would use those aspects of quality and quantity of light and shaping light and negative fill and shadow to be able to bring the best out of the tile as a character. Bashing it into the ceiling is going to flat light your scene, obviously, and give you a very flat image, which will give you uh, a very even image. But I think listening to your questions, you're asking to be able to bring more and to take it to the next level. And the next level is lighting these in a very neutral vein that will give it depth and dimension and light and shadow. And that's what's cinematography is all about. And once you start shaping that light and moving that light, you're going to really start to wow your clients and you're going to start to take your image quality up several notches. Which camera filters would you recommend? Well, I wouldn't be too uh, much in using any kind of diffusion filters or anything like that, because then that's going to soften the tile. And again, it's going to affect the look of what the people are buying, right? They want to see it in its element. And that's kind of your job when we talk about product to show them what it really is in front of them. And you don't want to try and round the edges, let's say, by using a camera filter. Which diffusers and light setups would I use? Well, I kind of talked about chimeras are going to be great, like the medium soft banks are going to be great to be able to move in. The ability of using hard Fresnels to be able to bring in through windows. I think you should make sure your art direction has windows in it that give you the ability. It's funny, uh, yesterday I was on set, the babysitter, and we had a POV shot. It brought me back to the days of Active Valor, where I had to light Cinema 360 with all these POV, like over the gun shots. And it really brought me back to the camera has to look around this whole room and it bends all around and then goes upstairs and comes back downstairs and then walks and looks in the kitchen and looks in the living room and then goes in and exits the door. And the gaffer was saying, well, geez, we don't have any place to put stuff. You know, I, I we we got to light everything from the outside. And, and I said, exactly. That's because that's what's real, right? If there's a, a moon ambience uh, that's coming into the room mixed with the hard moonlight, then that's going to be coming from outside. So if there's a practical light that's on upstairs, then, then there's going to be a, a light motivating that from upstairs. If there's a metal halide that's like a area light out in the backyard, then that's going to be motivated from outside. Even our moon bounces, everything was outside. And the reason I do that is because it enables you to control light already. Because now it's being honed and shaped coming through a window, coming through shears, coming through curtains. You now take that so you've already done immediate light control by pushing it through a window. Then you decide if you want to raise it up and if 
your tile, it's along a wall, you know, like a backsplash, let's say. Then you could rifle in some nice sunlight that would be white with some mullions, like it's coming through the window across the countertop. And then you could ricochet off of that hot sun, like a bounce light that then comes into and exposes the backsplash. It would look very real right? Because obviously that sun's going to come into the room. It's going to ricochet off of a wall and bam, Bob's your uncle. You got realistic lighting and neutral lighting to be able to showcase your tile backsplash. This is my best advice for you. Lighting the sets, it should come from where reality is. And then obviously you can take it up a notch with adding reflections in the tile, which I use a lot. It's like lighting a car or, or lighting specific product shots. Uh, I'm always taking like fluorescence. I'll take like a two foot or four foot fluorescent. I'll tape the whole thing up except for just a strip. So it has like a half inch or a quarter inch or a one inch strip. And I'll just move that around and find a really cool reflection in this tile or backsplash. And then that gives accent. So the reflection gives you a whiter tonality. And then uh, as you tilt down, it gives you the beautiful color of what the tile actually is the color of it. But again, you're starting to see it in natural environments. And I think people will resonate with that and make them want to buy that mosaic or that tile. All right, next question. I have a project coming up in which I need to light a few talent, firemen and others, in front of a house which is burning down. The house is either going to come down via CGI or a scale model. How would you recommend to light the talents to simulate a big house burning in front of them without actually setting up a huge fire? Would you have some crew move bounces to simulate the natural movement of flames what would you recommend and how would you approach this? The scenes would be night exterior. Many thanks again. Well, you are in luck. We are doing, and I think it's this question that we saw, and we've created content for 2016 where I show you exactly how to simulate firelight. If there is a burning house and you're saying a few talents and the burning house is in front of them, okay? So obviously you're gonna be on their back and you're going to be seeing the fire behind them and you're saying that would be CGI and then you would come around to their faces and you would have to simulate that fire as well. Fire is a very, very bright source, especially if it is a whole house burning to the ground. I would suggest using very large lights that you can put into a magic gadget. And large lights, I'm talking 2K and you can get up to 5Ks. And it's usually a plethora of stuff because you got to light several people and you have to feel like it's wrapping and engulfing them. I would turn to mini nine lights. They rent for very cheap or nine light phase, six light phase, four light phase, two light phase. You can put those into magic gadgets. They have 6K magic gadgets and they have 2K magic gadgets. And what they are is 6K magic gadget has three 6K channels and a 2K magic gadget has three 2K channels. Obviously, this is all CGI and you're not actually creating the fire. So you could probably get away with two light phase as long as you feel like you can get that engulfing light because that's what it really kind of has to be. Your magic gadget you want to set with all toggles down and you can't do this on a dimmer board. It never works. I've tried it a hundred times with a hundred different programmers and board ops, and they never can get the recycle rate quick enough because the boards just don't get there. I would say get the magic gadget, put all four toggles down, turn the speed all the way up, and then set your variance between 35 and 55. And if you need more, you just slide that scale. So you're sliding the scale 20 to 25 percentage. So it's flickering that percentage. Now, if you need more light to expose your camera, then you just slide that 20 to 25 percentage scale. So if you need really bright light, you would be 100 to, to 75. 
or then you bring that down and now you're 75 to 50. You see what I'm saying? This range plays really well. And then depending on how bright your lights are to bring up the volume for what your camera ISO is, you would then put full CTS, half CTS, or quarter CTS on your tungsten source to be able to amber it up and make it nice and warm and golden like fire would be. I find if you're shooting on a Red Dragon at 800 ISO, if you did two magic gadgets and had six two-light fey lights and sprinkled them, imagine what fire does. Fire is hot in the center and then it tapers off to the top. So it's always hot and more brightish yellow in the middle, and then it whisks up and turns orange and orange-black at its tips. You want to build your light source like that, so it's hot at the bottom and trails off. So if you did two light phase on the bottom, you could do one light phase at the top and create like a triangle or a pyramid of these two magic gadget setups. And then you put it into your flicker effect, that magic gadget with what I just told you and with full CTS on that light, it will look beautiful like this just is a blazing house in front of you. In 2016, we go into exactly how I do this and how I create this look, show you examples of it, and I actually build these devices for you to emulate firelight. Next question. Hi, Shane. First, of all, thank you for the wealth of knowledge that you're passing on to filmmakers like me. You're very welcome. You're giving me confidence in my career. I keep surprising myself with the confidence I have in decisions that I make on sense since becoming an Inner Circle member. This is the biggest comment that we're getting from members, is the building of confidence. I really thank my team and my amazing crew and everyone at Hurlbut Visuals for us finally really cracking the egg on how we're delivering this content because I'm so happy that you're gaining this lighting confidence. Let's just say I am backlighting and bouncing like crazy. <laughs> All right. I'm really enjoying the images I'm getting now. For the question, I am doing some DP work on a short film coming up and wanted to get your thoughts on lighting a campfire scene. Ooh, another campfire scene. I'm in the fire on this episode. I'm going to emulate the moonlight with an M18 or a 1200 HMI through the woods, biggest light that we can afford, and then bounce some 1Ks to bring up the ambience around the fire among other practical lamps. How would you light a campfire scene? Would you think about using a flicker devices on the 1Ks to emulate the fire? Note, we are shooting on the Red Scarlet cameras. Thanks, Shane. Adam Gregory. Okay, Adam. I wanted to answer this question right after the beginning of this question because I kind of started to fill in the blanks with this whole magic gadget thing. The Fresnel lights will work fine. I'm just a big fan of these phase uh, because they have a lot of punch for a very minimal amount of money. So when you're renting lights, these are the kind of lights that are always in the back of the rental house that nobody uses. So they always go out for cheap. And there's not much that will go wrong with them. There's no spot, no flood mechanism. You can't really break the Fresnel. They have barn doors, but I never use them. It's a very simple, very efficient light that is very easy to use. But if you have the 1Ks, that's all good. You can use those. The flicker generator, it has to be the magic gadget. That one is the absolute best. In regards to emulating moonlight, you can go with an HMI, or you could go with one of my mini nine lights. And again, all these questions that I'm answering are, is kind of a precursor to all the incredible content that we've created for 2016. We go into five different 30 to 45 minute videos of exactly how I light moonlight, how I light at night in all different scenarios, with firelight, with just smoke and backlight, with moon ambience. It's a really great series, and I think you're going to absolutely love it. So all this stuff is coming. We've taken a lot of these questions and filtered them in to creating content because I can only do so much with a podcast, but now you're going to see it come alive in front of you on five different cameras showing 
each stroke that I go into. Getting back to your question, yes, one big source. And if you want an HMI, then obviously it's going to be nice and cold, kind of like Badlands, where I went with that really blue moonlight. And then your 1Ks around the fire using flicker lights is great. What you're going to understand immediately is with the red dragon or the scarlet, fire always looks a little yellowy and it doesn't have that really orange quality. The only time it really gets the orange quality is when you stop down a lot. Well, a lot of times if you stop down to get the fire, then you got to light the bejesus out of it. And that's what you're going to come into. It's a compromise. So if you light a campfire, which you absolutely need, you're going to then need to light their faces because the campfire will never put out enough light for it to illuminate their faces where you can actually hold the fire so it just doesn't burn out white and go into that weird white yellow that the the red does. Budgetarily wise, I would get as bright a lights as you can to light your environment and your night and then come in with a good amount of light to push onto your characters to simulate this campfire effect. And then that way you can shoot at more, I would say a four for your fire. Don't want to shoot wide open. You don't want to shoot a two. Maybe you're going at a two eight or a four, two eight four split, but you'll see, you want to just roll it and then play it back. You'll see your fire and its color and its tone. And you have to decide whether you like that color or tone or you need to light more so you can underexpose the fire so you can get that nice or expose the fire correctly, not underexpose, but exposed for that fire much better better. We were doing a lot of, on the babysitter, a ton of fire effects. And I was at 96 frames with the fire effects at an F8. So you can think about that at night. So that's 800 ISO. I'm shooting at 96 frames. I've lost two stops. Out of losing two stops, I'm then shooting at an eight. And that's where the propane fire looked good. Now, when you're burning wood at a campfire, Wood has uh, much more color than propane fire, like gas fires. Gas fires with ceramic logs and stuff that we use in the movie business, they burn very hot. Propane is a very hot fire. It doesn't have the beautiful color that wood does. If you can get away with it, you know, on movie sets, we can't. They won't let us burn wood anymore. You know, we have to use propane. If you are using wood, then you're going to get a much richer tone out of your fire and you'll be able to use less lights because it's going to be a richer red, orange, amber quality, golden amber quality than it would if it was a propane fire. You know, you just have to light that fire up, see where it is, look at your exposure, look where you like the color temp, the quality of that fire, and then you light to that exposure. That's the way that I've always done every fire. Now, there's going to be some times where it's a compromise that you don't have the lighting instruments and you don't have the time and you don't have everything that's required and you just got to let the fire burn out hot and then light their faces as best as you can with some kind of a flicker device to simulate and sell the idea that they are being lit by this fire. Best case scenario, you want to get your fire at the right exposure that you like it, and then you light to that exposure. Hi, Shane. You guys rock. Well, thank you. I'm so very grateful for all of you. Huge favor. Would you be able to talk about your Batten lights? When do you use them? How do you build them? Can you give us any examples of the scenes where Batten lights made the look of the scene more compelling? I would pay for that info. Thank you. I think the Batten light has been kicked around on the Facebook page a ton, and so many people have made and built their versions of them. You know, this is kind of um, one of my secrets that I came up with. Nobody else is using this technology. So I'm going to let you all figure this out on your own. I think there's enough pictures on the internet of how I have built them and used them. And I think you can use your ingenuity and imagination to get them as close as possible. But the Batten light, when do you use them? 
Well, I use them almost on every set that I've ever lit, dating back to, I think, Mr. 3000 in 2003 was the first time that I ever used a Batten light. And once I built it and once I saw the quality of it, I never turned back. And I, you know, work with gaffers, all different gaffers all the time. And their first comment is, oh my God, what are these lights? The next comment is, oh my God, we got to globe these every time. The third comment is, I have never seen anything look like this in my life. What the hell is that? Exactly. The quality of the light coming out of the batten is very unique. Every gaffer has the aha moment that I work with. And every time they take it and run with it and build their own. It's very simple. I've built them in all different sizes. I have one foot, two foot, three foot, four foot, six foot, and eight foot batten. I have fallen in love with the four foot, two foot, and one foot because I think they are the best for hanging around. Let me describe how I use them. If you are shooting a scene, let's say, for example, okay, the babysitter. We have a scene where they're playing spin the bottle and they're all sitting on the carpet in a living room. If I'm looking at our character in this room, the parameters of the room say it's 20 feet long by 15 feet wide. I will take the bat, four foot, two foot, one foot bat, and I will encircle the whole room, everywhere, 360 degrees. Then take it like a compass. When I'm looking north, I will add a one of the battens as a backlight on the person. And then I will bring up the right side, which would be, let's say, if we're looking at a compass, it would be the east and that becomes their key light. So they're backlit from the north and key lit from the east. Now we spin around. Now we're looking south. Well, you turn off all those battens that we just had on. And now all of a sudden you pop up the south to be able to backlight the person, and then you come in from the east so it matches the same light direction that you did on that person, and you keep the east on. You see what I'm saying? You're able to spin around and light so fast and so effectively. It was funny because the producers on The Babysitter were like asking the gaffer and the grip, what is with these battens? Why is he wanting to rig these things everywhere? We don't have the rigging crew. And the gaffer just said, I've seen these things in action. And I just want to tell you, it is going to save your movie. It's going to save your schedule. And that's exactly what they do. Once you rig these things, there is nothing that you cannot do. And you move so incredibly fast. It basically just gives you lighting control that needs no flags. So imagine if you were going to light a scene like I just described, and you're going to snap on a 1K Fresnel. Well, that 1K Fresnel is going to fly everywhere. It's going to go everywhere in the room. You have to make it look like it's not going everywhere. So you have to shape that with flags. And now it just takes time. The whole design of the batten is we're using spot globes. And that line of spot globes ends up being a very directional source that is very soft because it's a very long line of light, but it's controlled where it only hits what you want to hit. If you want a face, you hit the face. If you want a body, you hit the body. And whatever bounces around, that's like the kind of going back to my night stuff where I use maxi brutes and I use narrows and I tilt them off the set. This is the exact same thing, except you aim them at the individual. You dim it down to get the necessary level that you want. Whatever is coming out the bottom and the top and the sides of the spot becomes room ambience and it falls in and looks so real and it defies physics. The way this light falls off is very, very unique, and I cannot tell you how unique it is. I've never seen the quality of this light, and Mick G, our director, he's like, these Batten lights, my God, I just love the quality, and the Red Dragon loves these lights. Oh my God, it just brings out a tone in the skin that you've just never seen before. These things are a wonderful pearl of wisdom here. Uh, if you can build them and uh, get them in that nice line of light and get the right globe, you are set up for success. Hey Shane, my name is Sam. 
I'm aspiring to become a cinematographer. And I'm currently 15, about to turn 16. Wow, Sam, you're getting a young start and I love it. I'm wanting to do some low-budget Kickstarter commercials to get me going. I've taken Alex Buono's Visual Storytelling 2 course and your Advanced Cinematography Kit. Both courses are mainly about lighting people and sets. However, there is little mention of how to light products. I've done some practice shoots with random objects, and I'm finding it difficult lighting shiny objects. I'm also finding it hard to light small objects without making it look flat and unprofessional. So if you have any tips on beauty lighting for products, that would be great. Thanks. Sincerely, Sam. All right, Sam. Well, I love that you were starting at this age. If I knew that I wanted to become a cinematographer at 15, my God, I can only imagine where the hell I'd be. But uh, I didn't stumble on and realize that till I was about 28. Okay, let's get on to your question. Well, the reason I compiled this into the same bunch of questions is I kind of helped you with it a little bit, uh, answering the tile mosaic lighting question. But let's uh, address your question specifically. This is the way I want you to think about it. And this will start to open your mind. Lighting small objects. Now you're saying that it's hard because you're making them look flat. How big is your head? That's the question you have to ask. So if your head is the size of a watermelon, let's say, and you use a source that's four feet wide to light that, if you want some soft, wrappy thing, if you want a hard light, then you're using like a Airy 650 or a 1K for now or something like that. The size of it's like six inches or eight inches round. Okay. Now imagine now you're lighting a very small object. What is that going to look like? A small object with a 1K 8 inch Fresnel is going to be like putting a 20 by as your key light, a 20 by 20 source. Well, a 20 by 20 source is going to look damn flat. When you're lighting small objects, you have to light with very, very small lights. And that way you can keep that really nice shadows and stark contrast. And because you're lighting it with much smaller lights. The other thing about beauty lighting is three quarter back top light is your best friend. And what that does is you take your product and you go overhead and just back a little and you bring in a soft. I've done it several times where you put a source up at that three quarter top light, what I call a waterfall of loop diffusion that I'll tape up and I'll just let it fall down and then sweep back up. And that creates a beautiful quality onto your product. And then if you have shiny products, it's all about reflection. When you're lighting African-American skin tones, it's again all about reflection, the reflective quality of light. So if there's a shiny subject, I'd take a small fluorescent or if you were DIYing it, I take small little pieces of silver card or white, just a white sliver, and I set it and I can take like little Lecos and I just hone that Leco and I just light that one strip of white card and that will put a beautiful line, a reflection line in your shiny product. Because what we want to do is the shiny product is reflective. So you want to reflect cool colors. Let's say if you have a product that is black and shiny and you want to bring in some cool reflective tones in it, then you would take your Lico that you could slash onto that white strip of card and you could add some CTB, some cold color to it, and then it would bring up a, a cooler tone on your reflection and you just move it around. Everything when I'm lighting these products, I'm, I'm moving light around to find the best angle on it and the best reflection. And I'll just sit there and I'll, I'll move a, a light source around. I'm like, aha, right there. Okay, good. Now let's start to shape that and let's, that, that looks really sexy. And then I'll start to manipulate the light. But most of the time I'm doing it all handheld with a light 
till I find it where it looks the best. And then I start to either diffuse it or bounce it or whatever it is. I do a light study on the product to see what's going to be the best. So you do your first, your key source where it's going to look the best on the product. And then you come in with your accents, which are these reflective things that I talk about that are going to bring fill level. You want to create this backlight it's in strokes. Your first stroke is your key light. Your second stroke is your backlight. Your third stroke is your fill light. In lighting products, your backlight, your three-quarter top backlight sometime is your first stroke or it's your second stroke. And then you bring in your reflective qualities. And then the last thing you do is your fill light. So these are kind of the recipes for success in regards to lighting product. Next question. Is it possible to add an eye light without bringing up the levels? Oftentimes when I'm gaffing, the light is perfect on the talent, but they don't get a catch light and the DP wants one. How can I get that sparkle in the eye without changing the levels or the ratios? Thanks. Well, the eye light I like to use is actually a ring light. And I've made these ring lights where I've done bicolor light uh, gear in a circle source. So it's bicolor, so you can turn it any color temperature you want, tungsten, daylight, anywhere in between. And then I put milk plexi all the way around it, and I encompass it in this whole kind of milk plexi ring light. It's very thin, half an inch or an inch thick. And then that mounts around the lens. And I have it on a dimmer, a light gear dimmer, where a digital dimmer where you can just bring it up and down and it does a very smooth transition and you can change color temperatures as well as dim it down. And this brings that catch light in the eye without bringing the exposure up and losing that great mood. And it comes directly from the camera, so it's shadowless. And unless you have people crossing in front of camera, obviously it's going to give away the ghost. But other than that, I've found that this works the best. Anytime you try to put an eye light over the camera, I mean, this is the olden days when they used to have the OB light, they called it, which was this eye light that went over the camera. And you could dial it in on the dimmer and uh, intensify it and change the color temperature as well. This is back in the film days. The You know, you'd actually get it at a camera rental house. You wouldn't get it at a lighting and grip house. You'd get it at a camera. And Panavision had one that they built themselves called the Obi Light. It was beautiful. You could spin these rollers in the back and it would go from white to a colder blue. So if you wanted to do a colder tone or a warmer tone and you could dim it down by turning these rollers as well because they'd roll to a darker color or a lighter color. Oh my God, they were impressive as hell, but the Obi light was huge. I've really gone with the ring light around the lens and uh, mount it to the camera and it's kind of always there to just give that wonderful catch light in the eye without changing the exposure. Here's our last and final question. And this is a very unique one. Hi, Shane. Not related to my question. I love how he started right with that. But it really encourages me to see someone engage in the industry for so long with a marriage that has lasted just as long or longer. I listened to a podcast your wife did with the solo creative run, Dawson. It is just a blessing to see that you guys have weathered all the storms that must come with this line of work to still be together after 26 years. Well, now it's going on 27. I really appreciate that candidness that you choose family time over your job when those conflict. It's a great example for me, us, as young guns getting into this creative pursuit. Thank you for that. You are so welcome. And I love the fact that you bring this up because right around the holidays and everything, it's great to kind of share and little personal stories. My wife and I have been married for 27 years this year. We have known each other since we were three years old. She used to come over to my house because my grandmother, she couldn't move. She was bedridden for like the last seven years of her life. So her dad was Episcopal minister and he came every Sunday to bring her communion. And of course, his daughter, Lydia, 
came along. So we would play board games, we would swing, we would run around, we would do all these different things while he was giving uh, my grandmother communion. And then they would head off and go back to their house. And this happened every Sunday. It wasn't till the ninth grade that I really absolutely fell in love with her. It was in a musical called Oklahoma, and she was cast as my honey lamb. We did this whole dance scene together, and I just fell madly in love with her in ninth grade. And I remember going out on my first date with her and coming home and walking, and there was my mom at the steps, and she said, how was it? And I said, I just met the woman that I'm going to marry. And she said, oh my God, are you kidding me? There's so many fish in the sea. Don't narrow your view. All the quote unquote motherly advice that she gave me that I didn't listen to at all. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I knew I was going to marry Lydia at ninth grade. Yeah, just to share a, a little personal thing with, with all of you, because I really love this question and wanted to end the podcast on this question, because she is an impressive woman. She, I'm so madly in love with her and uh, everything that she does for me and our family is just the most compassionate, caring woman on the planet. And every day I thank God for delivering her to me, for her putting up with all my craziness and overdramatic self in many times and cannot thank her enough she is the love of my life and my soulmate. On with the question. I've never been a giant gearhead. From doing my own music and knowing what the latest and greatest effect pedals is or understanding what mic will get me the warmest sound, to live production and knowing what console is best outfitted with comps and pre-amps and such, my mind has never really worked that way. To a certain extent, I'm better at getting a piece of equipment and making it do what I want, or as close to what I want as I can, rather than planning ahead and really seeking or knowing exactly what I should use to get the job done. A lot plays into it like available budgets or just hands-on experience with the different pieces of equipment. But what would you recommend to those who don't live in the entertainment meccas with lots of equipment opportunities? or who don't have the giant budgets to test lenses and camera packages for their own shoots, to gain a familiarity with how different cameras interact with different lenses, or what type of lights will be best suited for this and that, etc. Is there a base recipe for determining these factors, or is really just getting the exposure to lots of equipment over a bunch of time? Thanks, Sean. I think the best answer to this question is what we're doing within the inner circle right now. We are creating content that you see and experience me using all different lights in all different situations, in all different conditions to be able to then educate you on what you should do. So I'm trying to do most of this homework for you for then you to look at and see what you like, what you don't like, what really responds to you, and how you can then use that to tell your stories. You talk about how test lenses and camera packages for your own shoot. Well, we're doing that all for you. We test so many lenses, I've lost track. There's a good a bit of information that you're going to be educated within the inner circle to really understand what lenses and which ones you like and what you don't like. There's more of that testing coming your way as well not even getting into the whole testing thing. First, you have to fail. And the only way you fail is just by doing. So just grab whatever lenses you have access to and just start shooting with them and just start composing with it. Start to figure out what compositions and styles you really like. Watch movies with great cinematography and great direction and see how they compose and how they lens and all that is so inspirational. One of the movies that I always fall back to is Bob Richardson's movie, Snow Falling on Cedars, or Roger Deakins, No Country for Old Men, Emmanuel Lubinsky's, 
Children of Men. These are movies that I study on a yearly basis to just get my grounding to see these incredible artists and what they do with light, lens, shadow. Getting the specific lights, we are testing so many lights. We're showing you so many different light qualities. You start with three-point lighting. You start very simple. You start with a key light, you start with a backlight, and you start with a fill light. And you just start to move it around and move your key light around to see where you like it. See if you need backlight or is the background being your backlight in regards to separating your character out of the background. Is the backlight needed? Is the fill light, what's the emotion on their face? Is, is it too in shadow? Do you want to see into those eyes? Do you not want to see in those eyes? Do they want to go dark because she's sinister or he's sinister? You know, all these things play into the emotion of the scene. There's not a base recipe, but there is a lighting package that if it can do backlight, key light, and fill light, all different lights will do that. You just got to start doing it and start playing around with it. I think about going down the road of uh, lighting my first feature film. I mean, I had lit many music videos and many commercials, but those are little snippets of of a scene or snippets of a lifestyle. A feature film has got to have the consistency and the right direction and the reality-based lighting and everything that really comes into it is so important to be able to pull off and make it feel real and, and at the same time unique, assisting the story. Roger Deakins has, I think, the greatest line of all, and I think it's why he has dodged the Oscar bullet so many times. And he says this, if you are looking at his lighting, then he has failed. And that's exactly how I light. If you are looking at what I'm doing, then I've failed. It has to assist the story. It has to be seamless. It has to just develop an emotion that you feel and that, that just burns within in. And that takes the character's performance that much higher. It's not a look at me, look at me. When you do that, you usually win Oscars. But when you assist the story and uh, take their performances higher, he should be winning Oscars based on that because that's the beauty and the art of cinematography. I will leave you with that because I think Roger Deakins is probably one of the most talented cinematographers in the world. And what he does is absolutely magic. And he does it with such subtle and such finesse and such elegance that you never say, look at that lighting. You just say, wow. And that's what I aspire to be as an artist as well. That concludes the 2015 December podcast, the last podcast of 2015. There have been so many great questions. Do not stop sending questions in. These things generate all of the content for the inner circle because we're pulling off of what you want to learn about, not just what I think you should learn about, but what is really boots on the ground is going to help you gain that confidence and that success that all of us are hoping for. Lydia and I, Miles and Kira, wish all of you a happy holiday season, as well as all the HV team members. Thank you so much for being a part of this incredible community and keep on the word of mouth, spreading the word, building this community into the powerful resource that it is. And I will continue to create the killer content and be there and share of all of my knowledge with all of you. Happy holidays. If you love what you're listening to here, go to shanesinnercircle.com. It is knowledge that is forged on the set. This is not a classroom environment. This is boots on the ground, immersive learning that you can apply immediately to whatever your skill level is. Knowledge you can trust, people that care. That's exactly what happens in our loving film community of shanesinnercircle.com. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. 
If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app. And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.